Here's good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the pine pod, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the pine pod, half a pine chill, half a joke, quarter joke, nippin' and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, here's good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the half gallon, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the half gallon pint pot, half a pint jill, half a joe, quarter joe, nipperkin, and the rumbo. Here's good luck, good luck, good luck to Welcome the Welcome back mow. to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I go through the history of American writers using the Library of America as my main source material. Currently, we are continuing our series on James Fenimore Cooper's The Pioneers. So if you're just joining us, I urge you to go back and listen to the previous two episodes where I talk about the first half of, of the Pioneers. Or better yet, you can go back and listen to my entire series on the Leatherstocking Tales, which I started by looking at the Deerslayer. Um, I guess that'd be 15, 16 episodes ago by now. So the Pioneers was the first of the Leatherstocking Tales to be written. It's actually the fourth chronologically in terms of the character's life. Our main character who we met first in the Deerslayer at a time when he was only about 20 years old is now you know around 70 at the time of the pioneers it's set in 1793 in essentially in Cooperstown um, which is the town f uh, basically founded by James Fenimore Cooper's father or William Cooper but in the for, for the sake of the story it's called Temple Town and the the main character is Marga Mar Marmaduke Temple the character we've been following throughout the Leatherstocking Tales, of course, is Natty Bumpo, variously known as the Deerslayer or Hawkeye or the Pathfinder, or in this case, just in this novel, just Leatherstocking, or often just called Natty. It uh, goes by his birth name, Nathaniel. He exists really in the backdrop of, of the story. His role is a bit vague to begin with. He, he seems to be more of a foil for, for settler society at the start of the novel. His, his role increases in importance later on in the novel. But for much of the novel, he kind of exists as a foil for pioneer society, uh, exposing its wastefulness, its, com its commercialism, its... its kind of pursuit of wealth and things like this so he's kind of there to criticize the more extravagant elements of frontier society he in in this sense then is the moral center of our tale as i said he goes by the name leatherstocking which is what the settlers call him because of how he dresses he he dresses ex pretty much just in clothes he makes himself out of deer hides that he that he gets from deer he kills he pretty much still lives off the land. He does have a cabin kind of in the woods. He's essentially like a homeless guy. He doesn't really have property. He doesn't really fit into this society in which land is being divided up and the settlers are, are kind of buying their plots. The whole town is really a product of land speculation, as we learn early on in the, t in the story. Now, Natty has to come to terms with the changes brought by this frontier society. He's often accompanied by his good friend uh, Chingachgook, who's now known in, the, in this novel as Indian John. He's been Christianized. Sometimes he's called John Mohegan uh, because of his background as a, as a Mohican, and they, they basically misidentify him as Mohegan. And, and Cooper explains all this. These are just different terms for the same group of Indians. Um, he's the titular last of the Mohicans from that novel, if you've read it, or, you know, I did a whole series on that novel not long ago, but he's now been nominally Christianized, yet his, his 
religious convictions are debated and gossiped about. And that's one thing we get a lot in this novel, which we really don't get much in the other Leatherstocking tales, is all this gossip about essentially these weirdos who are living out in, in the woods. Unlike the other novels in our series, the other tales in this series, this one doesn't involve conflict with the French and Indians. The first three Leatherstocking tales we looked at are all set in wars between Britain and France in which the Indians got dragged into it. The largest conflicts in this novel are not military at all. They're really legal. They're police actions. We have an accidental shooting. We have a poaching case. Uh, there is, a, at the end of police action, there's a fire, and then there's a question of who started the fire. There's inheritance is a bigger issue. So it's all, it's really beyond Natty's repertoire of, of how to solve problems. You know, he's good at problem problems when it comes down to the gun. When it comes down to lead, he's, he's great. But with these legal things, he's a bit blinkered. It is still full of drama for this, um, but as this Centaur society is really moving past him and destroying the frontier that he knows and he grew up with. He finds he's at a turning point in his life. So although it's late in his life, it's in his 70s, he still finds he cannot adapt to the world that's been created. Now, in the first half of the Leatherstocking Tales, or the first half of the Pioneers, I mean, um, Scooper... Cooper spends much of his time working on the details of this world. It's a very dynamic world. It's, it's a radically changing frontier society. But mo about half of the novel is set essentially around two days, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of 1793. Uh, as the novel progresses into 1794, time moves a little bit faster, and we get more of a, a story about in the environment and ecology and sustainability. So essentially what happens in the first part of the novel is Marmaduke Temple and his daughter are coming to Temple Town. She's coming back from, I think, New York City or maybe it was Albany uh, to, I think it was New York. Done with her education, she's going to go live with her father in Temple Town. And along the way, they meet uh, a young man named Oliver Edwards, who's traveling with Natty Bumpo, Leatherstocking, and Chingachgook. Edwards is actually shot. Uh, they get in a dispute, actually, over who shot a deer, and the wound in Edwards' arm proves that that they shot the deer because the, the other guy's bullet went into Edwards. They take Edwards to Temple Town for medical care, and along the way, we're introduced to other characters in the town, and the cast is really diverse. It's, it's quite a dynamic, interesting cast of characters. But rumors spread about Leatherstocking, um, Indian John and this young man, who they are, what their heritage is, and these, these questions are all bandied about by the people of the town. After this, after he's fixed up, his arms fixed up, the men of the town eat dinner and prepare to go to church for its Christmas Eve. After the church service, the people of the town go their separate ways. Some go to a tavern for gossip and drinking. Others just go home and drink there. The next morning, various people of Temple Town participate in a turkey shoot contest, which is won by Natty. Although since Elizabeth Temple paid the entrance fee, she gets the turkey, which she then gives to Oliver Edwards as kind of a a, you know, a, a peace treaty gift. Um, he's also at that point offered a job, a position working for Temple and Temple being the most powerful, the richest man in town. People actually come to him for like patronage and Edwards is offered a job basically as a personal secretary for Temple because his personal secretary has just been promoted to sheriff. He takes the, the position, but he resents it and he talks about how he has to work with his enemy. Um, and that all, all that all those events happen basically over two days. But then we kind of zip forward and we get a few months of story time covered in just a few chapters. We learn more about Temple Town 
including things like its very vibrant and growing maple sugar industry. And we got a whole chapter about the use of the forest and how some people are, are over, like abusing the maple trees to beyond their capacity to really recover. And there's the question is, are there more, are there more sustainable ways to produce uh, maple sugar? In the last episode, I mentioned this book by historian Alan Taylor called Williams Cooper's Town, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of Early American of the Early American Republic. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's a really wonderful book. It's really a biography and a social history of Cooperstown and a biography of William Cooper, James Fenimore Cooper's father. Uh, James Fenimore Cooper is talked about in this book as a character and as someone who kind of comments on it. So the pioneers is a is discussed a lot in this book and it comes up from time to time. And according to Taylor, I think he thinks Cooper, James Fenimore Cooper was really trying to work out inner demons and family history through this work. And he talks about this maple sugar industry stuff, and it's kind of interesting, at least for me. And it's a good transition to the themes of, of the second half of the novel. And I'll just read this. This is from page 134 of the paperback version. Quote, William Cooper was guilty of the inconsistencies attributed to Marmaduke Temple in The Pioneers. As a proponent of both maple sugar and potash, Cooper displayed the same contradictions the Temple manifests in decrying but joining the settler's slaughter of wild pigeons and fish. Although Judge Temple does not fling off his coat to join Billy Kirby in attacking the trees, his commitment to preserving the sugar maples proves as rhetorical as his defense of the passenger pigeons and Ostigo Bass. Some scholars have interpreted Marmaduke Temple's concern for the sugar maples in The Pioneers as homage to the enlightened environmentalism of William Cooper. I would suggest instead that James Fenimore Cooper means to undercut his father's claim to social and environmental authority by casting doubt on the depth of his commitment and the effectiveness by casting doubt on the depth, okay, uh, and the effectiveness of his leadership. Ultimately, the settler's unchecked assault on the forest exposes Temple's inability to exercise the genteel authority he covets. The novelist remembers his father as an ineffectual protector of sugar maples, who also and increasingly promoted their burning to make potash. Um, so it's, it's rather fascinating. It's in a section in this book called uh, Contradictions in a chapter called Jewels of the Forest. And it, it starts to explore how Cooper and kind of the society helped build up, use the environment around him. And of course, this is a major theme of this section, the central part of, of the pioneers. Um, so with that as a transition, let, let's go into this discussion of the birds and the bass. Um, because that's that's some of the most memorable elements of the pioneers. It's something that a lot of people who read this novel come away struck by. And it's in chapter 22. This is the classic scene in the pioneers. It's it's the kind of passage we often read like in college courses on maybe environmental history uh, because it's so memorable and it, it really gets to the point of how early American pioneers and, and settlers in the, in the, in the West completely mismanaged the resources there. I guess the example most people can come to for that would be the buffalo. Um, but these, this is much earlier than, than the Great Plains settlers. So th this is all in chapter 22, the, the pigeon shoot. The point of this chapter is simply to contrast the conservative and sustainable poaching of Natty. And that, that's the important point, that it's conservative and sustainable, but it's also illegal. It's, it's a poaching. And this will come up later, I think chapter 30 or so, and 28, 29, 30. That, and I'll talk about him in this episode later on, but I just want to, he's going to be accused of poaching for killing one deer. But we've already seen the, the settlers 
violently misuse nature. And this is just one of the examples of that. The, maple, the sugar maples is, is another, but this is maybe the more memorable because we get this scene of, of just a sky full of thousands. I think at one point Cooper even writes millions of birds passing by and you have these white men just shooting randomly into the sky. Birds are falling and there's really no reason for it except for sport. It's legal, though, and this is the activity of the people of Templetown. So these two things are being contrasted. Cooper reminds us again and again of how full of life the Pioneer region was in the forests, in the skies, in the waters. But he's also showing how recklessly the people of this land turned this nature into commodities. And maybe this is something Cooper isn't quite aware of on a theoretical level, but it's what he's describing. He's describing the transition from nature to commodities, birds to meat, trees to sugar, you know, fish into basically into dinner tables. So it's a kind of repeating what was talked about in the maple sugars. But so actually Cooper goes through this story three times and it's a bit repetitive perhaps, but this is a much more visceral story, it seems to me, um, because of the imagery. Quote, the reports of the firearms became rapid, whole volleys rising from the plains as flocks of more than ordinary numbers darted over the opening, shadowing the field like a cloud. And then the light smoke of a single piece would issue from among the leafless bushes on the mountain as death was hurled on the retreat of the affrighted birds who were rising from the volley in a vain effort to escape. Arrows and missiles of every kind were in the midst of the flocks. And so numerous were the birds, and so low did they take to their flight that even long poles in the hands of those on sides of the mountain were used to strike them down to earth. And then a little bit later, quote, so prodigious were the number of the birds that the scattering fire of the guns and the hurling of missiles and the cries of the boys had no other effect than to break off small flocks from the immense masses that continued to dart along the valley, as if the whole of the feathered tribe was pouring through on that one pass. None pretended to collect the game, which lay scattered all over the field in such profusion as to cover the very ground with the fluttering victims. Again, very, very memorable um, imagery. Now, Leatherstocking is with this group, and he famously shoots just one bird, which is all he needs for his meal. Temple sees this and starts to scold people for the waste after seeing Natty's example, but really does nothing to change the nature of their misuse of the environment. And I think that's Alan Taylor's point, is that Cooper never really has Marmaduke Temple redeemed from his, his relative indifference to this. He, he scolds them, but he doesn't actually emit, you know, emit any policy change. Uh, to change the development. He, he wants the products of the forest. He wants the economic activity. He wants the wealth from it, but he doesn't really want sustainability because he doesn't act on it. He just scolds it. So he's at the stage of moral suasion. He's not at the stage of actually confronting the misuse. And then, so we've heard this story twice, first with the maples, then with the birds. And then in chapter 23 and 24, we get it once again, this time with fish. So it's a reinforcing the same themes, and it's obvious, you know, Cooper's not hiding his argument at all. He really seems to want to make this point. Here he adds another dimension to it, though, which really I think I agree with Taylor on this, that he really starts to question Temple's commitment to sustainability. In this chapter, the people of Templetown are fishing and take more fish than the entire community can eat. And this is before refrigeration, before these fish could be shipped to New York City. So it's for the local market. Yet they're 
you know, they collect more than the whole town could obviously eat. This ensures that most of these fish or many of these fish will be wasted. The people believe that they cannot harm nature, so they take as much as they want. Um, one character, Bill Kirby, kind of the vagrant-style woodchopper, says, I have a notion that there's water in this lake to swim the biggest whale that ever was invented. And as to the pines, I think we ought to know something concerning them. I have chopped many a one that was 60 times the length of my heave without counting the eye. And I believe, Benny, that if the old pine that stands in the hollow of Vision Mountain just over the village, you may see the tree itself by looking up, for the moon is on the top yet. Well, now I believe that if the same tree was planted out in the deepest part of the lake, there would be water enough for the biggest ship that it was ever built to float over it without ever touching the upper branches. And so that's the quote, but it, it's, it seems to be suggesting that nature is so huge and so massive and the bounty is so limitless that there's really nothing we can do to truly damage it or affect it. And then as they haul up the the fish, this is what we what Cooper writes. Even Elizabeth and Louisa were greatly excited and highly gratified by seeing 2,000 captives thus drawn from the bosom of the lake and laid as prisoners at their feet. But when the feelings of the moment had passed away, Marmaduke took his hand, a bass that might have weighed two pounds, and after viewing it a moment, melancholy musing, tuned to his daughter and observed, This is the fearful expenditure of the choicest gifts of providence. These fish is best, which thou seest lie in such piles before thee, and which by tomorrow evening will be rejected food at the meanest table of Templetown, are of a quality and flavor that in other countries would make them esteemed a luxury at the tables of princes or epicures. This world is no better fish than the bass of Ostigo. It unites the richness of the shad to the firmness of the salmon. Um, so is he authentic here? Well, the sheriff approaches him about his hypocrisy on this. And, and basically he says, you demand progress, but you question how we use the natural world. And I think this is the point worth considering. The sheriff says, here are a good thousands of the shiners, some hundreds of suckers, and a powerful quantity of other fry. But this is always the way with you, Marmaduke. First it's the trees, then it's the deer, and after it's the maple sugar, and so on till the end of the chapter. One day you talk of canals through the country where there's a river or a lake every half mile, just because the water won't run the way you wish to go. And the next you say something about the mines of the coal, though any man who has good eyes like myself can see more wood than you could keep the city of London in fuel for 50 years. End quote. So his criticism of Temple comes down to the fact that you want progress. You want mines, you want roads, you want all this stuff, and you know, you're just as much to blame. Um, now just a side note, this where this takes place seems to be the same setting, the same place that the setting of the Deerslayer was, uh, Lake Oswego. So I don't know if the old the castle is still there or remnants of it on, on an island. But it's the same setting. Then chapter 24. Um, we're in the same place, but this chapter is more about Natty's experience with fishing. And just like with the birds, he just spears one fish for his own needs and nothing else. Ben Plum almost dies falling out of the fishing boat. And I'm reminded at this moment of, of the debate that went throughout the Pathfinder, which was the, the, the skills of the freshwater seamen versus the saltwater seamen. And the saltwater seamen always being very pompous and arrogant about their about their skills and their prowess, especially compared to freshwater seamen. And Ben Plum is kind of, Ben Pump is a kind of of this uh, vein, who's often talking about his time as a British sailor, and he's very proud of that, and a bit pompous at times about that. Now, I don't know if Cooper was thinking of this theme yet, 
it's it's a bit humorous though that this boastful sailor is so awkward in the water and needs saving by the frontiersman but mostly this chapter is showing natty's overall goodness and that's the main focus of these chapters his restraint his moderation and his overall goodness and we need to remember these chapters on wastefulness when we come to the poaching case later on because natty killed one deer for personal use out of season and for that he's going to suffer a great deal and go through a lot of a major crisis in his life. Eventually, that's going to be one of the major reasons he decides to leave. Another reason will be some some issues are resolved that he's not needed there anymore. But he certainly can't really fit in this this frontier settler. I don't want to say, want to say frontier settler pioneer society. So, chapter twenty five. Uh, with these major themes out of the way, Cooper now shifts his focus back to the plot of the novel. Now, the second half of the novel is dominated by two plot lines. One is the legality of poaching, and the, the second is like the just ownership of the land around Templeton. Who has a right to this land? We know from the second chapter that Temple had a business, or Temple's father, actually. I, I may have misspoke in the first one. It was actually Major Effingham worked with Temple's father. They were business partners, and they're the ones who kind of speculated on, the, got this land out in the West. And then Temple's father dies and kind of, Marmaduke Temple inherits this, and he's the judge who inherits this land and becomes a land speculator. So it was Temple's father that had this relationship with Effingham. So he never actually met Effingham directly, uh, but just knows of him. And he still, Effingham still has rights to this land, but Temple basically inherited it. So you can go back to read chapter two of the novel to, to revisit the context here. But in this chapter, chapter 25, Temple gets a note in the mail that someone very close to him died at sea. It's going to turn out to be the suggestion he gets from this is that Major Effingham dies. We don't know this now because we're not told who it is. And it's not revealed till later on what the context of this letter is. But we do see that Temple is greatly affected by that. And he immediately calls his lawyers. There's a lot of legal matters connected to this. And he goes like into a back room and talks to his lawyers. He excludes Oliver Edwards from the proceedings, and this is an important plot point. It's all very mysterious, but it's enough to say now that it seems that the meeting has something to do with the claims of Major Effingham. So in this chapter, we also see Louisa Grant and Elizabeth Temple discuss Oliver Edwards, his background, and they start to gossip. And there's growing hints of a burgeoning romance between Elizabeth Temple and Oliver Edwards because they're spending a lot more time together. Edwards is working in the Temple home. But it's still like suspicion about his background. Is he half Indian? You know, what, why was he hanging out with these weird homeless guys um, out in the cabin? So this gossip about his background has not ceased in the least. Elizabeth, though, insists that Temple, the Temples are doing everything they can to make Edward feel at home. And the ongoing kind of hostility and resentment Edwards expresses from time to time is something that really seems to bother Elizabeth. All right. Well, that's all really to say about that chapter. Um, Chapter 26, we're kind of back to the question of resources and development of the town. We find our characters in a side plot surrounding the silver mine. As was hinted at earlier, Temple has an interest in seeing if there's mining resources, coal or, or silver, um, in, in the lands he, he's acquired. And of course, this makes sense as a speculator. You want to make sure you don't sell off land that might have silver or whatever. So he has, a, he has a silver speculator out there kind of looking around for that, for silver, silver mines. And that, that's just kind of introduced. And then Elizabeth and Louisa, 
take a walk in the woods. Oliver Edwards has nothing to do, so he goes to visit Natty Bumpo's cabin. And he sees that Hiram Doolittle was there kind of creeping around. And he's kind of a justice of peace in the town. He's got other positions, but, you know, he's kind of in Temple Circle. And he leaves in a bit of haste after kind of messing around Natty Bumpo's cabin. It seems like he was trying to burgle it. And that's what Oliver Edwards assumes. You know, he's like, why is he here? He must be trying to rob, burgle Natty's, Natty's home. He then just kind of tracks down Natty and Indy and John, and they go fishing. And there's a really beautiful conversation. I'm not going to dwell on it too much, but it's they spend four or five pages just talking about their past and the sights they've seen and the cat skills in other places. And they all have their moment in which they talk about these memories they have. Um, and I, I think at one point, Natty Bumpo talks about the most beautiful place he's ever been, which is in the Catskills. Chapter 27. Natty's dog is locate, has located a deer and starts barking it. And the do- dog is free. And this is a bit shocking to Natty, who had tied up the dog. But they assume the dog just got free, got excited and got freed. Natty and Chingachgook jump at the chance to kill a deer. You know, they don't want to lose the opportunity. Oliver reminds them that you can't kill a deer outside of season. And it's against the law, but they do it anyways. The whole situation we're given here is strange, though. The dog was revealed to be set free by someone because they find that strap wasn't torn. It was cut. And Oliver obviously thinks the culprit is Hiram Doolittle. Chapter 28. So... While this is going on, we, we zip to Elizabeth and Louisa, who are continuing their walk in the woods. And they're essentially attacked by a panther in this chapter. But Cooper first introduces some more details about this burgeoning romance or the possibility of a relationship between Elizabeth and Oliver Edwards. All of his novels have some kind of relationship being talked about or emerging. And this is the one in The Pioneers. It's not really clear that they're a match, though. They seem to come from different worlds. And that's what the girls, the young women are talking about as this chapter opens. But uh, a panther attacks. Natty arrives just in time to save the day. He kills the beast, um, shoots him. And there's like a bounty out for these panthers. So it's also a way Natty can make a little bit of cash for himself. So he's just, so just in a little bit of time, literally probably just minutes, Natty has committed a crime slaughtering a deer outside of season and then also did a great public service save the damsel in distress and we're always told to kind of measure these things just the same way we're supposed to measure the crime of a poaching versus what was done to the birds or what was done to the the fish in the fish in the lake the balance between Natty's goodness and his criminal lifestyle dominate much of the rest of our story and that's i think the core problem in the novel we need to talk about and that is that Natty's lifestyle itself is criminal by this point in the story. So why is Natty's life criminal? Well, he doesn't own the land he lives on, so he's a squatter. And he doesn't have any money to buy the land, and he's not going to. He, he kind of exists because Temple lets him. But in that sense, he's criminal. His survival comes from hunting, and he hunts often hunts animals outside of season. That's the only way he can survive. And so that's illegal. There's nothing Natty can do really without being on the other side of the law and it's basically because temple doesn't want to interfere with him too much that he's allowed to to do this he's kind of like these you know in america a lot of cities pass laws 
regulating the lives of homeless people in ways that make it almost impossible for homeless people to live, you know, and, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's the, it's really obnoxious things like, well, they'll put the bars, they'll separate, individualize the seats on the park benches. So homeless people can't sleep on them or even the ones where they'll put spikes in places where homeless people tend to tend to find protection uh, from the elements. You know, but cities pass these laws that essentially make it illegal to be a homeless person while not creating the social safety net that would make homelessness impossible. Now, Natty has no desire to not live the life he wants to live. So the parallel is not quite exact, but there's something there to this idea that his whole life is, is criminalized. And eventually the law is going to come down on him, and it does. So chapter 29 so we, we jump back to kind of Richard Jones and Temple who are going to the silver mine. And this is a really kind of bizarre chapter. So there's a man there who's been sent to prospect for silver, Jotham Riddle. He really doesn't have anything to show Temple, but he says there's silver deposits here, but he doesn't have any proof. He just insists they must dig here. And Riddle is another shifty character in the novel. He's very much um, like Kirby in that he's, he's one of these people who's hanging around, who's not really respectable. He doesn't have a good job. He doesn't have good land. He's just kind of hanging out and he does odd jobs and things. So he's very useful to people like Temple from time to time, but he's not really quite settled. He's somewhere between Natty and the settlers. They're, they're all of the settler society, but they're, they're still kind of outside of it in some ways. And when he's brought up, when he's mentioned, his name is mentioned, this is how who is it? I think it's Temple talks about it. He's, he says, what a dissatisfied, shiftless, lazy, speculating fellow who has changes his country county every three years, his farm every six months, and his occupation every season. An agriculturalist yesterday, a shoemaker today, and a schoolmaster tomorrow. The epitome of all of that unsteady and profitless propensities of the settler without any one of the good qualities to counterbalance the evil. So that's how I think it's Temple describes him. Obviously, for someone like Temple, it's best if everyone kind of is a, is a good farmer and producer and doesn't shift around too much. Rumors are introduced by Richard Jones that Natty and Chingachgook are handy, hanging around the mines. And the, and the assumption is that they're basically taking silver and then smelting it in their homes. Another illegal act, because that would be essentially not just squatting on Temple's land, but actually stealing his silver. They've been located at this region from time to time. And why else would they be at this area that's presum presumably a silver mine, if not to steal silver? Jotham, though, is very suspicious about why they, they, he wants them to dig here. Jones does show a cave to Temple, which he says that there seems to be evidence that people are digging here, which again kind of says maybe Natty is involved in some kind of illegal smelting. And it's not just smelting that's the problem. There's, there's rumors of counterfeiters, and this is an era, and there's been books about this. The, you know, early American history was rife with counterfeit currency and counterfeiters. And that was before really a, a standard national currency was really well established. Of course, the Constitution grants that, that the Congress, the Treasury is the one who has, the, who has control for the mint. But you don't yet have like a national, well, I guess the National Bank would have been with Hamilton, but you still had state banks and things. And there's all these kind of different paper currencies floating around. And it was pretty easy to counterfeit silver and things like that and adulterated and distribute false banknotes and that's a subplot in this novel and the, the hint that maybe natty's up to something nefarious with you know with silver i think what you do is you take you mix gold with silver you take gold coins and you mix them with silver 
So they still look like gold coins, but they weigh a little bit less and they have less of a quantity of gold. And then you pass them off as gold coins and therefore you, you profit from, from counterfeit currency that way. Anyway, so if, if he's smelting in his home, he's a thief and a capitalist and possibly a counterfeiter. Now, we all know this is out of his character. This is not the kind of thing Natty would spend his time doing, but there's this doubt put in the mind of Temple that that's what his, his good friend is doing. At the end of this chapter, Louisa and Elizabeth arrive after their escape from the Panther. In chapter 30, Hiram Doolittle arrives to Temple's house asking for a search warrant, and he wants to investigate Natty's home for evidence that he's been poaching deer out of season. So apparently he witnessed the death of this deer, and he sees that Natty does it, and he wants to collect proof. So he needs, a, he needs a search warrant. Now he gets this, Temple gets this news just after hearing Elizabeth's story, and she goes on and gives the details of how she was rescued and saved by the same man. So Temple is bound by the law to investigate, and he approves the search warrant, but he has reservations. Doolittle goes and makes Billy Kirby a deputy because he's a bit too coward to go alone to do this. Temple kind of washes his hands of the whole thing, passing it all off to Doolittle, who's a justice of the peace. Billy Kirby, who's deputized. And they also bring along um, a Riddle, that, that, that other shiftless guy. So there's kind of the laws relying on these people to kind of do the dirty work. And that, that's kind of the suggestion we get here. The attempt to serve the search warrant is a disaster. Natty is openly hostile to anyone searching his home. He, he basically beats up Doolittle, the justice of the peace. He points his rifle at Kirby. And Riddle and Doolittle run off. But interestingly, Cur Billy Kirby and Natty have enough in common. They seem to like each other a little bit. They, they seem to laugh about the entire affair. And in fact, Natty does give him deer hide and say, yeah, you know, I poached stuff. You need evidence. Here it is. You're not welcome on my home, but you can have this evidence. Um, but in this nice tense scene, we get for the first over time, Natty coming face to face with the law and he emerges temporarily victorious over it. But the way law works is it doesn't matter if you're temporarily victorious, right? It doesn't matter if you get away from the cops, it's, they'll, they'll find you, right? And punish you even worse. So that, that's what happens to, to, to Natty here. But he does stand up to the law. But in the end of the day, that's that's meaningless. And then that brings us to the final chapter I'll look at in this episode, chapter 31. Poaching's a small affair. It's, it's, it's like a $5 fine. I guess that's a lot of money, but Natty's work hunting animals that have bounties on them, like the Panthers. And he, I think he had two skins that he could claim. Basically, this would more than cover the cost of the fine. So there's really not an issue of the cost. Elizabeth is even willing to pay the fine herself. The problem is this compromise isn't going to work because when the details emerge about Natty's violence, pointing a gun at agents of the law, be striking one agent, uh, Justice of the Peace, Temple basically needs to bring Natty to court. He can't let this slide. When Oliver hears of this development, he immediately quits his service to Temple. Temple tries to reconcile with him, but fails. So this is this sets us up for the climax of the novel, uh, which will be which I'll explore in the in the final in part four of the Pioneers. Uh, but that does it for now. Thank you as always for listening. If you have any comments or thoughts, if you've read Alan Taylor's work and the Pioneers, and you you, you have any comments on how these two works, you know, can be read together. Please let me know if you've just read The Pioneers and have opinions about it. I would be very much interested 
in your thoughts, especially on this issue of, of, I guess, how we deal with the character of Marmaduke Temple. Is he a good guy or is he, at the end of the day, just another pioneer? But so send me your comments. You can post them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Please, it would help me a lot if you left reviews on, on iTunes or just shared this. Um, but in any case, uh, thank you again for listening. We'll be back with part four of and the finale of Here's my review the of daughter, The Pioneers. Good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the daughter. Good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the daughter barrel. Half barrel gallon. Half gallon pipe pot. Half a pint jill. Half a jill quarter jill. Never get out the round bowl. Here's good luck. Good luck. Good luck to the barley mow. Here's good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Jolly good luck to the landlord, good luck to the barley mow. Oh, the landlord daughter battle.